Well, we thank God for this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this session. We pray that your word will inspire us, will minister to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. I should have really done a PowerPoint presentation, but forgive me. Anyway, if you want the notes, I'll give them to you. I, I do give my notes every now and then, but I really should have had a PowerPoint presentation. I really wanted to do it today, but I, I didn't have enough time on my side. So uh, we'll do our best. Well, I want us to look at this scripture as our foundational text. John chapter 3, verse 33. 333. John chapter 3, verse 33. I pray this really ministers to you this morning. Today I'm going to be talking on the subject, the Bible. I'm reading this from a different translation. There's a translation called The Message. So I want to read this from The Message. But anyone who examines this evidence will come to stake his life on this, that God himself is the truth. So this morning, like I said, our discourse is going to be on the Bible. Um, this is a book that has been examined by the court of popular opinion and it has been through much scrutiny than any other book. It is either people doubting it or ascertaining its truth. Now from this verse, we see that the word of God is called an evidence. So what this verse is actually telling us is that when you stick your life on this Bible, on this word, the Bible lets us know that you will come to know that it's true. So the Bible is called an evidence. Why is it called an evidence? It's called an evidence because the Bible allows for such testing and such scrutiny. God is not offended when you want to examine him. He's not. He's not offended if you want to cross-examine him or investigate him. Because there is really nothing to hide. All that will come out will just be truth. Have you seen people who have been offended when they are investigated or cross-examined? It's one of the many reasons why there is a lot of escalation and tension between the policeman and the civilian. Because no, no, everybody has an aversion to being investigated. Why do you want to know my business? I'm just driving at 65 in a 55 zone. Just give me my ticket and let me go. Don't ask me any more questions. You know, we all have this apprehension and all these airs about us because we sort of feel like we are being deposited. Nobody likes to be in a deposition. But God doesn't mind if you put him in a deposition. God doesn't mind if you examine him and cross-examine him or investigate him. Because the Bible lets us know that if you should examine this evidence, which is the word of God, it's true. At the end of it, you will conclusively arrive at one answer. And that one answer is God's word is truth. So, secondly from this verse, we see that God equates himself to the word of God. So, th that's why when you read John chapter 1 verse 1, the Bible says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God. 
And right here in this scripture, we see that God is equating himself to the word. So God and his word are one. The third thing that we see here is the Bible is explicitly known as the truth. So now, what we can safely conclude from this verse is the Bible is a book of integrity. Let's all say the Bible is a book of integrity. Every four years, this word seems to come up. I don't hear the word integrity a lot till it's election time. Every politician wants to be voted for. Every politician will want your votes because he or she is a man of integrity. But when we talk about integrity, what does integrity really mean? Integrity actually comes from math. You know, in the subject of math, they have something called integers. And I think integer is any number divisible by two. So let's say 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12. They are integers. They are whole numbers. Why? Because they are numbers that you can divide by 2. You can't divide a number by 2 with 3, 9, 11. There's always going to be a remainder. So when we talk about integer in a mathematical sense, it's whole. And that's where we get the word integrity. So when we are talking about the Bible, what we are saying is that the Bible is whole. The Bible is free from error and any fallacy. In theology, they call it the infallibility of God's word, which means the word is free from error or any mistake. Integrity is also used in an engineering sense. For example, when we all came here, we all took the lift. Do you know why we took the lift? The lift didn't crash on us and the lift was able to take us to our floor. It's because the lift has an integrity. And why do we say the lift has integrity? It has integrity because it has been tested to make sure that it can carry the specific load required. So that's also integrity. And then personally in your life, when we are talking about integrity, it means that what you say and what you do, they match. And that's why for the politicians, when they say something and when they don't do it, the court of public opinion holds them to task. You said you were going to reduce taxes by 5%. It's two years now and we are still at 9%. What is the problem? You know, it's an integrity problem because what you say and what you say you are doing, they are not coherent. But when we are talking about the Bible, the Bible is a book of integrity, meaning it is whole. So with that said, this morning, I just want us to examine the Bible because God has specifically said in John 3, verse 33, that when you examine the word of God, you will come to find out it's true and you will stake your life on it. Now, when we are talking about examination, there are two types of examination I want us to consider. External evidence and internal evidence. And what do I mean by external evidence? External evidence simply means extensive research which is done conclusively. So the person might not even be alive during the time when the story was written or the narration took place, but he or she can ascertain through data, facts, collation, 
and come to the, the conclusion that the research found is true. So, for example, before the Bible even was written, there were about 5,366 copies that were found. That were copies and fragments of the Bible. That's why they say the Bible is true. Because when it was found, it was already documented that nobody could either add or take away from the Bible. So that one alone is even a fact. And it was this that was passed down generation to generation, which later it was circulated and then canonized and sold to the public as the Bible. So it wasn't like someone gathered facts from somewhere. It was already written. It was already in history. And they just collected all the copies that they had to be able to form what was called the Bible. So there are three areas that I want us to look at. They talk about the archaeology, scientific, and historic. Now, when I talk about archaeology, what am I talking about? Archaeology simply means to dig. For example, when they talk about the tablets on which the Bible was written, it was found like 2,000 years ago. And when it was found, everything that was written, for example, like in Genesis, everything that was written about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because when they found the Ebla tablets, that was what was written. They wrote the accounts of all the expedition of Abraham, all the journey and the adventures of Isaac, and whatever Jacob did, their life story. When they found these tablets in 1970 in northern Syria, and when they did the research, they found that everything that was written was true. Because everything that was written, there was physical evidence. So the five cities that were mentioned in Genesis chapter 14. So when you read Genesis chapter 14, there were five cities mentioned. When they checked, all those cities have been excavated and have been proven to be historically or archaeologically correct. Which makes us know that the Bible is true. Now, for example, when you read your Bible, and I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Bible. The Bible lets us know King Solomon had horses. That was something that was disputed. We all didn't know whether it was true because people said that horses never existed during King Solomon's time. But thousands of horse tables have been discovered and they have been linked to the reign of King Solomon, which makes it true that in those days, Solomon truly had horses because they have footprints, they have evidence to ascertain that. So archaeologically speaking, the Bible is a book of integrity. What about the historic facts? If you ever go to the British Museum, I'm, I'm sorry, in London, England, there are so many biblical artifacts that you will find. For example, you will find the existence of Sodom and Gomorrah. How many of us have heard of Sodom and Gomorrah before? Yeah, if you, uh, it's not a myth. It is real. There are artifacts, there are remnants, there are things there that they have gathered to let people know that of a truth. Sodom and Gomorrah did exist. How many of you have heard of Canaan? If you've read the Bible, you've heard of Canaan. When you go there, you will see remnants of Canaan there, which actually show that the Israelites really did go to a place called the Promised Land, which was called Canaan. And 
Hugo Winkler is a German historian. He discovered the Hittite capital. And if you read the Old Testament, you realize that one of the prominent cities in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, which is from Genesis to Malachi, is the Hittite capital. And Hugo Winkler discovered that in 1906. He came to say that, no, this book is true. This is not a Cinderella book. This is different from Hans and Gretel or Cinderella. This is actually a real-life account. Because all the traces, everything that he found, all the excavations have been conclusively proven to know that the Hittite capital really did exist. Because up to 1906, this was a bone of contention. What is the Hittite capital? Is it myth? Is it fact or fiction? But Hugo Winkler, who was not even a Christian, just a historian, discovered and conclusively said that the Bible is true based on that hard evidence. Amen. So now let's switch gears to science. So now we've looked at archaeology. Let's look at science now. And we've talked about history. Now, science is catching up with the Bible. We've looked at the historical facts. We've looked at the archaeological facts. Now, let's look at science. Science is catching up with the Bible. Why do I say that? Do you know that up until the third century, it was said that the earth was flat? That's what we all believed. Even, you know, I, I think Kyrie Evid even made a comment about the earth was flat and, you know, it's... It went about it. It became like a headline. But the earth is not flat. It's been scientifically proven that the earth is not flat. It's actually spherical. And it was proven in the 3rd century. We are in the 21st century. So that was 18 centuries ago. 1,800 years ago, it was proven that the earth is not flat. It's spherical. Why? Because it's spherical based on calculating the circumference of the earth. Now, a very funny thing. When you read Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22, the Bible lets us know that God sits on the circle of the earth. So before Hellenistic astronomy discovered that the earth was spherical, over a thousand years ago, a prophet by the name of Isaiah spoke by the inspiration of God. I don't know whether Isaiah even did science or he did astronomy. But he spoke by the inspiration of the Spirit, and it is quoted in Isaiah 40, verse 22, that God sits on the circle of the earth. So science is catching up with God. So right until the third century, so much debate. What is the position of the earth? How does the earth look like? Is it flat? Is it round? Is it spherical? But before that, Isaiah had already prophesied about that, and it took over a thousand years before science was able to catch up and conclusively prove that the earth is indeed spherical. Now, in 1543, there is a man called Nicholas Copernicus. He discovered that the earth is suspended in space. That's 16th century. And we are in 21st century, so that was like 500 years ago. 500 years ago, it was discovered that the earth is held by nothing. The earth is just there. Just 500 years ago. So it's just a new revelation. But did you know that 
1907 years earlier. The Bible had already predicted that. When you read Job, Job chapter 26 verse 7. And for your information, Job is the oldest book in the Bible. You know, there are 66 books in the Bible. The first book, the oldest book that was ev- the, the oldest book that ever existed, or the first book that was written, was the book of Job. But when they were putting the books together, Job is not the first book. Genesis is the first book, but Genesis is not the first book written. The oldest book of the whole Bible is the book of Job. So Job wrote in Job chapter 26, verse 7, that the Lord hangs the F in nothing. So Job knew. He said that the Lord has stretched the heavens and he hangs the earth on nothing. And I don't know whether Job did science. Job was not a scientist anyway. Job was just a businessman. He was someone that had a lot of cattle, that had business, and that was very wealthy. But through the inspiration of the Spirit, Job was able to know that the earth was in space. It was hung on nothing. But it took the world 1,907 years later for them to catch up with that realization that of a truth, the earth is hung on nothing. Amen. Now, when you read Joshua chapter 10, it's a very interesting story. Joshua chapter 10 lets us know that Joshua was in a war with an enemy, and that was the enemies of Israel. And whilst they were fighting, it was getting dark. And the Bible says that Joshua commanded the sun to stand still. It's in your Bible, Joshua chapter 10. He commanded the sun to stand still until the Lord gave Israel victory. Now, just 2017, that's just four years ago, a group of scientists came together and they had a theory. And the theory was... When they look at the cumulative years of existence of this earth, when they calculate it, I don't know how they even come up with those calculations. Sometimes I don't understand scientists. Why do they bother to do some things? Why do you want to calculate the existence of the years of the earth? I don't know. But, well, when they did the calculation, they realized that the earth is a day short. After 3,000 years, they are now discovering that. And And in Joshua chapter 10... And now, the period between Joshua chapter 10 and this present age is 3,000 years. So after 3,000 years, a group of scientists are now coming up that it's a theory that the earth is a day short. But when you read Joshua chapter 10, you will find out the reason why the earth is a day short. Because there was one man who was filled with the Spirit of the Lord who caused the sun to stand still that unless the Lord gave Israel victory, it should not be dark. Are you understanding me? So, scientifically proven, the world is true. And then now we have what we call internal evidence. So now we've looked at external, we've looked at the archaeological aspects, the historical and the scientific aspects. Now when we are talking about internal, internal has more to do with eyewitness accounts. So now, a typical example is Moses. Moses was actually there when the Red Sea parted into two. It wasn't someone that told Moses. It's not a second-hand account. 
Moses was first-hand, well, he was eyewitness. He was first-hand accounts to that story. The, the, the Red Sea split into two. Joshua, when Jericho fell, he was there. It wasn't someone that told him. And that's why all these things later it has been proven. It has been found and been proven that of a truth, the Red Sea indeed split into two. It has been proven that the walls of Jericho fell. But the walls of Jericho fell, and how do we know that? Joshua wrote about it. He was there. It wasn't someone that told him. And later, it has been proven. So now when we are talking about the Bible, you can subject it to external and internal evidence to know that what the Bible says is true. And one thing that is very important to know about internal evidence is the disciples who work with Jesus, they also declared Jesus to be true. So Jesus is not a myth. He's real. He's as real as you and me. Now let me read a, a, a scripture in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 to 2. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 to 2. Wow, thank God for the AC. I'm like, it's hot. From the very first day we were there, taking it all in, we heard it with our own ears. So this, this John, so this internal evidence, he's given an eyewitness account of who Jesus was. I heard Jesus with my own ear. I saw him with my own eye. I verified him. Remember the word verify yesterday? I verified him with my own hands. The word of life. Now, Jesus is also known as the word of life. He appeared before our very eyes. We saw him happen. And now we are telling you in most sober prose that we witnessed what was incredible. This is the infinite life of God himself took shape before us. So that's internal evidence. So when John is talking about, I saw Jesus, and when he has that conviction to preach the gospel, he is not doing it based on secondhand information. He is talking about something he has actually experienced, something that he has actually touched and handled. So the Bible can also be subjected to internal evidence, and the Bible indeed can be proven to be known as a book of integrity. Now, let me talk about some facts now. Who wrote the Bible? The Holy Spirit through man. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 to 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 to 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Other, other versions say all scripture is spirit breathed. Some versions use the word all scriptures is given by the breath of God. And they are all the same. So who wrote the Bible? The Bible was written by the Holy Spirit. And how, 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 how was it written? It was written by the Holy Spirit through men. And that's why Job was able to say, the Lord hangs the earth on nothing. Because Job didn't do astronomy. 
job is not a scientist. It will take a scientist to come to that conclusion that of a truth, the earth hangs on nothing. But how was Job able to say that? He said that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Are you understanding me? Isaiah was able to say that God sits on the circle of the earth. I'm sure if we should see Isaiah today and if we ask him to calculate the earth's circumference, he wouldn't know. But a scientist will know how to calculate the earth's circumference and he will be able to arrive at a point to be able to say that the earth is spherical and not flat. Now, how was Isaiah able to say that? And I believe in those days, there was nothing like science. Uh, Of course, there was some bit of science, but it's not advanced like what we have today. Yet, Isaiah was able to speak under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that I serve a God who sits on the circle of the earth. So, it comes to point the fact that it's the Holy Spirit that is the author of the Bible. Because people who were able to make certain pronouncements that are so bewildering, they made those pronouncements not because they were educated. They made those pronouncements not because they were skilled in that arena also. They made those pronouncements because they were inspired by the Holy Spirit to make those pronouncements. So it goes to prove the fact that the Holy Spirit is indeed the author of the Bible. Do you understand? When was it written? Now, the Bible that we have today, it took a period of 1,500 years to be written. So from Genesis to Revelation, it's a period of 1,500 years. So most of the authors never met. They never met each other. Some of them, the, the books are centuries after each other. A century is a hundred. So some books were written centuries after that. They never met. It's 1,500 years. It was written on three continents, and it was written by 40 authors. So the Bible has 66 books written by 40 authors, on three different continents and it, 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 it was written within a span of 1,500 years. Do you all understand? 40 authors, humans, wrote it. So people like Job, David, Paul, they all have books ascribed to them. But mind you, they all wrote these books under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Do you all understand? So you see Job, he wrote the book of Job. But he wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You will see David, books as 1st and 2nd Samuel, Psalms, 1st and 2nd, um, uh, no, Kings is not included. Psalms, all these books are credited to his accounts, but he wrote them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Moses wrote the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, but he wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Apostle Paul wrote almost the entire New Testament, but he wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So do we all understand when I say inspiration? So the Holy Spirit is the express author, but he used human vessels to write the books. Do we all understand? Okay. So what is the theme of the Bible? The theme of the Bible is only one story from the beginning to the end. The whole Bible is about God's love and salvation for man and how he came into the world through Jesus Christ. 
That's the whole book. And that's why yesterday, in passing, I did make a statement that the Bible gives us historical accounts of certain heroes of the Bible like David, but the Bible is not about David. It gives certain historical accounts of Samson, but the Bible is not about Samson. It gives certain historical accounts about Moses, but the Bible is not about Moses. It's only about one man. He takes center stage. His name is called Jesus. The whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation, if you read it, it is a story about God's love and salvation for man and how he came through Jesus Christ to perfect that gift for us. So now, the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi is the Old Testament. The Old Testament talks about the anticipation of Christ. That's why it was written. So, when Adam and Eve sinned, the Bible lets us know that they took thick leaves to cover themselves. But God used tunic skin to cover them. And that tunic skin came from a lamp. What God was saying was, a time will come. My son Jesus Christ, he will be the lamp of God that will be slain for your sin. Are you understanding me? When Moses took the blood of the lamp and smeared it on the doorpost of the Israelites, the Bible lets us know that the angel of death passed by. And when the angel of death passed by, whoever did not have the blood on his or her doorpost, firstborn son was killed. That was a prophetic picture that one day, Jesus' blood will be shed on the door of our hearts. That when the angel of death, who is the devil, shall pass over. And when he finds that the blood has separated us, we will not be touched. So that is a prophetic picture of who Jesus was going to be. So the Old Testament is anticipation of who Christ will be to us. Now, when you read the scriptures, and David talked about the Lord is my shepherd in Psalm 23. He was referring to Jesus who was going to come one day, and he was going to come as a shepherd king. And when he comes, we shall not want he was talking about the relationship that we will have with him one day. So the Bible talks to us about the anticipation of Jesus. And that is the Old Testament part. And that's why when you read the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, it has prophecies concerning who Jesus was going to be. Isaiah talked about him, that one day he was going to die. He was going to be beaten. He was going to be bruised for our transgressions. He was going to be wounded for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was going to be upon him. Anticipation. So, Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, it makes us know the anticipation of Christ. So, when you read the Old Testament, it props our heart to let us know that one day, a Savior is coming. Now, when you read the Gospels, Matthew to John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it talks to us about manifestation. So it's no longer anticipation. So now, the Jesus who was being prophesied, and, and yesterday I said in person, there were 300 distinct prophecies about Jesus from Genesis to Malachi. Now, in Matthew to John, we see the manifestation of Jesus. 
He came as a man. Even though he was equal with God, he taught it not to be equal. He, he, he taught it not robbery to be equal with God. And he descended and became a man like us. Manifestation. And when he came, what did he come to do? He said, I came in the volume of the book. He came to fulfill the purpose for which he was called, that we will experience salvation. He was crucified, he died, he was buried, and he resurrected. Why? So that all of us could be saved. So Matthew to John talks to us about the manifestation of Christ. Now, after the Gospels, we come to a book called the Book of Acts. The book of Acts now talks to us about proclamation. Now that Jesus has been manifested, now that Jesus has ascended right up to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the apostles who walk with Jesus, they now begin to preach the gospel to people. They were proclaiming who Jesus was because they had a real-life encounter, a real-life experience with him. And one of the disciples I quoted to you was John, who said that I handled Jesus, I saw him with my eyes, I heard him with my ears. Proclamation. And why could they proclaim Jesus? Because he was manifested. And I learned something from this. For all of us to be able to proclaim the gospel, we have to experience a manifestation of Christ. If you haven't experienced a manifestation of who Jesus is in your life, if you haven't experienced a manifestation of who Christ is as your Lord and Savior, it will be very difficult for you to proclaim the gospel to somebody. You can't proclaim the gospel until you have experienced a manifestation. And now the epistles. What's the epistles? Romans to Jude. Romans to Jude now talks to us about explanation. It explains to us the significance of Christ's death. It explains to us the concept of salvation. It explains to us what it really means to have eternal life. Why? Because of what Christ did. And then after that, we are left with one more book, which is called the book of Revelation. And what is the book of Revelation? Consummation. It finally talks as Jesus, as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the one who will come back to judge the quick, the living, and the dead. Do we all understand? So the Bible is in entirety, it's a revelation about who Jesus is to us. Now I end up with, with this, in defense of the Bible. Let's talk about that. Because now, the Bible, like I said, it has been subjected through much cross-examination, analysis, I'm sorry, investigation. And only one thing will come out, that Jesus is true. And the word is true. Now, in 1776, there was a man called Voltaire. He fucked the Bible. He said, 100 years from now, there will be no Bible in existence. He said this in 1776. 100 years after he died, the Bible is the best-selling book of all time till today. During the pandemic, the best-selling book was the Bible. There were no Bibles. During the pandemic, Bibles were short. 
unless you downloaded software but there were no Bibles. Toilet rolls were short, but Bibles were short. None on the shelf. The Bible is the best-selling book of all time. And the funny thing was that 100 years later, Voltaire's home was used as a Bible printing press. The one who said that in 100 years to come, the Bible will not be in existence. His house was where they publish <laughs> Bibles. It was bought. His house was bought and it's used as a Bible printing press. His name is called Voltaire and it's history. Amen. Robert Ingersoll, a man, in 15 years, he said, I will have the Bible in the morgue. That's what he said. I give the Bible 15 years, I will have it in the morgue. Well, 15 years later, he himself was in the morgue. The Bible was not in the morgue. And the funny thing was that they took his things and they auctioned it. And do you know who bought them? A preacher. He bought his chair, his table, all his, where he sits down to have his philosophy. And the preacher prepared some of the best sermons ever. The Bible is true. In the late 1800s, there was a scholar named General Liu Will Wallace. And he discovered to disprove the Bible. You see, that's why I'm saying that God is not offended if you want to cross-examine the word. Because he has said it. If you examine the word, you will come to a conclusion that the word is true. And you will stick your life on it. So God welcomes examination. He welcomes investigation. Investigate him. Now, this man called General Liuale said, I'm going to set out a course to disprove the Bible. His quest led him to discover even more wonders of the Bible. And what happened was that a man who set out to disprove the Bible later became a hardcore Christian and one of the best evangelists America has ever seen. He wrote the popular movie Ben-Hur. Have you heard of Ben-Hur before? I have watched Ben-Hur. It's a classic movie here in America. He wrote that movie. The Bible is true. There was another scholar. His name is called Sir William Ramsey. He had a similar experience. He traveled to Asia Minor to find geographical evidence just to disprove the Bible. So he was also like General U. Wallace. He's like, this Bible, I'm just going to find geographical evidence just to disprove it is not true. But to his amazement, he came back and he discovered that everything that is written about the Bible is remarkably accurate. And because of this, he became a Bible scholar and he became a hardcore believer in the Bible. The Bible is true. God has said it in his word. If you examine this evidence, you will stake your life on it and you will say of a truth, God's word. Is truth. Amen. Let me read the scripture and I'm done. Luke 24. Verse 44. 
Jesus was explaining the scriptures to his disciples and he said something that I want us to take note. These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. One of the ways by which you'll be able to know Christ and not see him as a mystery is to read the Bible. That's all. So if God is a mystery to you, if you are struggling to make sense of God, make time to read the Bible. Don't see the Bible as a crisis point. Or it's only when I'm in crisis that I have to take the Bible. Don't see the Bible as a panic alarm button. But see the Bible as this is the book through which the mystery of God the Father, the mystery of God the Son, the mystery of God the Holy Spirit will be revealed to me. This morning I present to you Christ who is in the form of the Bible. When we read the Bible, we will get to know Christ clearer and we will have a manifestation of Christ. One of the ways for us now to have a manifestation of Christ is to read the Bible and we experience God in a practical way. Apostle Paul, he never saw Jesus, but he wrote almost the entire New Testament because he experienced the manifestation of Christ through the Word. Today, I present the Bible to you. It is not just a book that transforms, but the Bible lets us know in John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things that are written Jesus said, it is concerning me. So whenever you take this Bible to read, you are fostering relationship with God and it will change the trajectory of your Christian experience. Can we bow our heads and pray? I just want you to thank God for the Bible. Thank him. Thank him. The Lord said it himself. If you examine me, you will stake your life on it and you will say of a truth, my word is true. Thank him. The Lord welcomes testing. The Lord welcomes examination. The Lord welcomes cross-examination. But you will only come to one conclusive evidence and that is the truth. I present to you the truth of God's word. It is archaeologically tested, historically proven, scientifically proven. And above all, it is spiritually proven that God's word is indeed truth. I just want you to thank God. Thank him for the word. The word never fails. This word has outlived all its critics. This word, this word has become the best-selling book since time immemorial. We thank you, Lord. We trust your word in Jesus' name. I want us to pray the second prayer. Make a commitment to God that you read the Bible from today. Because it's through the Bible. Look, if you want to know Christ, it's not everybody that will have the opportunity to have an epiphany. Some of us are going to know God through his word. That's why God has given the word. The word is more than enough than any epiphany, than any spiritual experience you want. This word is enough. If you read this word through its 
you will know who Christ is. God the Father will become real to you. His love will become real to you. Christ's salvation and, and what he means to you and, and, and what he came to give to this world will become alive to you. The Holy Spirit will become cognizant to you all because you took time to read the Bible. Everything that God has given to make known of his mystery that he will become as plain as day to us is given to us through this Bible. So today, just make a commitment to God. Jesus said it when he met the devil. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Can we begin to pray and make a commitment to God that, Lord, I'll return to your word one more time. Even if it's just one verse for five minutes, I will do it. If it's just two verses for ten minutes, I will do it. Make some commitment to the Lord today. We found out that the word of God is true. The word of God is God himself. Make a commitment to it to read it. Because this word will not just inform you. This word will transform you. Let's begin to pray. Thank you, Jesus. May we live here with a strong resolve. May we live here with a commitment, O Lord, to read your word like never before. And we come against temptations. We come against battles that will fight against us that we will not be able to read this word in the name of Jesus. We pray that, O Lord, let your will be done. Let your will be done. Help us to love your word and read your word. We give you praise now and forever in Jesus' name. Thank you. Father, I've delivered your word to your people. I pray that as we take the word of God to read, may we experience the power that is associated with your word. And may we experience your express person. We want to experience your presence, O Lord. May we experience your manifestation that will proclaim the gospel to all. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless you.